From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An African-American member of the Denver School Board announced recently he won't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Anytime we want to see systematic change, it's come in the form of protest one way or another. Today, Tay Anderson reads from emails he's gotten since, expressing support and disgust. Also, an ecologist in Colorado who grew up in Australia, his childhood playground is now on fire. What he can tell us about an ecosystem that may never be the same. Plus, understanding Colorado's part-time legislature and dance and music inspired by the great sand dunes. And when all of those little sound particles add up, it creates these huge waves of sound. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At the next Denver School Board meeting, something won't happen. At-large member Tay Anderson will not stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. He made this known in an open letter which began this way. As a black man, I am reminded today and every day of the injustices that still exist within our society. I am remaining seated as a representative for those who were not afforded the right to be here today, those whose lives and liberties were taken from them, and those who are still fighting for theirs. And the letter ended this way. I recognize that this decision may be difficult for some to understand. I ask you to reflect on that discomfort and attempt to see this peaceful protest through the lens of people who are consistently left behind and forgotten. I end with the somber words of James Baldwin. It comes as a great shock to discover that the flag which you have pledged allegiance has not pledged allegiance to you. We wanted to know what kind of feedback Anderson's gotten since he hit send on that letter. He's going to read from some of the responses today. Let's just say they've been mixed. Tay, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Before we have you read from some of the responses, uh, and I'll just note that there is some sensitive language coming, take me to the moment you decided, that's it, I'm not standing for the pledge. I was um, sitting at my desk for the last day at work as a Denver Public Schools educator and had uh, several flashbacks of why I was doing this work. That is just as you were moving on to the school board job. Yes. I decided that our students need somebody on the Denver School Board that can be a living example of what it means to utilize your constitutional rights. And the first one is the freedom of expression uh, and the freedom of free speech. And with that, I wanted our students to be able to see that if their leadership is doing it, if their leadership is saying that there is injustice within our communities and within our country, that they have the right to do the same. You said you had flashbacks? Yep. What do you mean by that? Um, I had flashbacks of just various conversations I've had with students. Um, As somebody who was in the discipline role, um, I've seen students, unfortunately, handcuffed and taken away by law enforcement, and it breaks my heart because we are consistently seeing a system that has set up our children, especially our our young black and brown children, to push them into the school-to-prison pipeline and not help break that system. And so I want to be that change that helps break that system of inequity. Denver Public Schools has its own officers and school resource officers, presumably protecting kids. 
you as a school board member, you know, have some sway with them now. Uh, what, what would you tell them? I have been very firm on my stance that I don't believe that our schools should have school resource officers, but we should utilize that money to increasing more restorative justice opportunities, more mental health supports, uh, and more social emotional supports for our students. And that's been a clear ask from our students in Denver Public Schools. Um, we've had students that came to us in our last board meeting and said, we want you to remove the cops and we want you to add more mental health supports. Although that change can't happen overnight, I'm going to be looking forward to having that conversation with our community and with our students, because those are the people who live with uh, cops in schools every single day. Back to this idea of not standing for the pledge. Of course, high-profile athletes kneel during the national anthem. Colin Kaepernick is probably best known. How, how much did they shape your thinking? Him and I are in two different positions. Uh, he kneeled and his employer of, uh, eventually let him go. My employer are the constituents of Denver. And so I was elected uh, with 51% of the vote in a three-way race to serve Denver kids. And I told people on the campaign trail, I'm an activist. I have been leading different rallies and protests and uh, standing up for injustices around our city and around our country for the last couple of years. And that spirit was not going away when I got elected. That is to say, you were not going to transform overnight into a pure bureaucrat. That's correct. Uh -huh. That's the message <laughs> I think I'm hearing. Yes. You were no doubt aware that these high-profile athletes unleashed a firestorm of, of support and criticism, and it appears that you've received the same mix. So let's go through some of the emails you received. A note that none of the feedback we're going to hear was sent anonymously. Everyone used their names and emails, although we're not going to bring those to air. But um, why don't we start with a positive one? Mr. Anderson, I am nearing 70, a former teacher, white, and I voted for you. Simply put, don't let these bastards get you down. Keep on keeping on. You are heading in the right direction and leading by example. Feel free to contact me by email if you ever need a pick-me-up convo anytime. And then they left their name. She identifies herself as white. Yep. Is that important? Uh, for me, yes, because it's showing that it's not just a bunch of African-Americans or supporting an African-American. Did you reach out to her? I did not. Do you think there'll be a day when you do? Uh, I probably will. A lot of the messages of support, people have left their numbers and their emails um, and have offered the same thing. Just let me know if you need to talk, and I will definitely be using those as the next four years go forward. Okay. A negative reply. Go ahead here. Sir, please resign. You are an ungrateful person. What does race have to do with patriotism? I voted for you, and I wish I hadn't. I noticed you failed to mention your objections then. What you have done is lie. You are an ingrate, and your kids are using drugs. Sir, please stand or leave. It is now clear that your agenda is to divide us. I, I don't think he's speaking uh, specifically about your biological kids. I, I imagine he's speaking about... I, I don't have DPS. children. Yeah, okay. So that's clear. <laughs> this person brings up the idea of patriotism, which I don't, I don't think that's a word you used in your letter. No. So, so this is someone who sees your actions as unpatriotic... You know, I'm thinking of veterans who fought for the what the flag represents. What, what would you tell them? When our men and women are going into the armed services, 
they swear an oath and part of that oath is to uphold the Constitution. When we get sworn in as elected officials, it's to uphold the Constitution. I simply exercise my First Amendment right. Um, it really is telling what some people define patriotism and what people do not. Because this country was not founded upon peaceful actions. It was founded upon having to take a protest against Britain in order for people like my grandmother, um, who had to enable for her as a black woman to be able to have the right to vote. Not only was she hosed down, did dogs come after her, but she had to protest in order to get that done. So we've seen in this country is that anytime we want to see systematic change happen, it's come in the form of protest one way or another. What is the biggest change you want to see? What would allow you to stand for the pledge? For me, it's really about making sure that we see system-wide change. An example is in Aurora, Colorado, an officer was drinking, drunk driving on the job, and he was forcefully removed from his car to not be held accountable or to even lose his job. But I know that the way that the system is set up as me as a black man, and that if I was drunk driving and intoxicated enough to where the police had to forcefully remove me from my car, would I be able to, one, keep my job, two, be able to have no consequences, or three, would, what, what would be the outcome? And oftentimes when we are seeing young black men come in and to encounter with police officers, we're seeing situations where we have like Elijah McClain is dead, and he's from Aurora, Colorado. I don't have to list off the, the names of people that have died around our country. Although you do in your letter, and just I to do. be clear, yeah. There is a theme in that last email that I want to pick up on. It's gratitude. This person has a sense that, I don't know, as an African-American, as a minority, that you should be grateful to be here. Do you ever hear that? Yes, I've been told that if I don't like... America to go back to where I came from. And I am a son of the United States. Uh, I have never visited another country, but I do know that people that look like me hundreds of years ago did not make the choice to come over here. They were brought over here by force. I want to point out that we selected email responses, both positive and negative, that offer differing discussion points. Some were just like not insightful in the least. For instance, one email simply says, you're a traitorous piece of <laughs> How representative is that name-calling type of response in terms of the feedback you've been getting? Um, I've had that happen more than once. More of the emails have been critical. More of the phone calls have been critical. Uh, and more of the social media postings about me have been critical. Um, I understand that if this action does not get me four more years in office in 2023, that's okay. Uh, I ran for office on a clear platform of who I was going to be as an elected official, and I did exactly what I, w I campaigned on doing. It's the same thing we've seen with Tom Sullivan. Tom Sullivan said, I'm going to the House of Representatives to bring gun reform to our state. Tom Sullivan lost his son in the Aurora Theater shooting. Yes. Okay, another kudos email. I am a former student of Colorado Public Schools. Although I was privileged enough to go to school in the Boulder Valley School District growing up, you encourage and inspire me to fight harder and stand taller in the face of people who stand in the way of justice. Thank you, Mr. Anderson, from the bottom of my heart for fighting for the kids in Denver who need an advocate the most. 
And I hope the Twitter don't get too loud for you. Remember that. Thank you. Do the Twitter trolls get too loud for you? Um, no, actually. How do you uh, deal with that? So because I'm 21 now and I am a, I'm able to drink wine, I have had my, my own series of personal mean tweets. Me and my friends gather and we like scroll and we read the tweets and drink wine and have a good time. Is there a risk that you make yourself the center of attention and eclipse the issues the school board deals with? Does that make sense? Yes, um, I would say no. I am utilizing the power that I was elected to, to receive um, to shed a light on these issues uh, that are currently plaguing our communities. When it comes to me, I'm the, I'm the name uh, and I get to vote yes or no on items. But the real vehicle is my community. Something that hasn't been reported is when we had our first board meeting and I decided to sit Student leaders from across the district were supposed to present um, their presentation for the semester, and every student leader in the audience decided to remain seated too. And they were seeing that, and they came up to me afterwards and said, thank you. Thank you for taking a stand for us, um, but also by showing uh, what power we have when we elect people that look like us. How about to some more criticism? The subject is why I have little concern or respect for blacks. The reason? It's you, sir. With 12% of the population, blacks get more of everything and do much more of the issues that harm America. Slovenly dependent Section 8 dwellers who exist on food stamps and government handouts. Does that sound like anything you've ever faced before? Uh, As a person who was raised by a single mother, we had Section 8. We had food stamps, but we weren't asking for handouts. Um, We were asking for a hand up. We were asking for the system that my mother is trying to raise as a teen mom, um, a son by herself in this world to help her out just a little bit. But she was also the valedictorian of her high school. Um, She was able to have me right after graduating high school um, and has built a successful life for her and myself. And I am so proud to have taken this journey with my mom. And she became a first time voter in this election for me. And so people see that when people of color are on different government assistant programs, they often forget that people who aren't of color are also on these programs as well. And it's not about black or white. It's just about the income and wealth gap that currently exists within our country. Shall we uh, wrap up with a letter of praise? Yep. Okay. As someone who voted for you in the recent election, I'd like to express my support for your decision not to stand during the Pledge of Allegiance. As an American, you have every right to express your opinions. As an elected official, we've chosen you based on your thoughts about schools, not because you necessarily reflect all of your constituents' opinions on all political and social matters. Thank you for using your platform to call attention to a serious problem in our country. Tay, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Tay Anderson is a new at-large member of the Denver School Board. He made it known he'll remain seated for the Pledge of Allegiance to protest injustice. There are a bunch of part-time employees at the state capitol now deciding the future of the state. We're talking about the lawmakers 
It's a part-time gig with a session that starts today and lasts four months. Meanwhile, other states meet year-round, some every other year. What's the reason behind this? We're going to get answers from Natalie Wood of the National Conference of State Legislatures, which is based in Denver. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, To be clear, your group is a nonpartisan, serves state legislatures around the country. Why do the people who decide policy in Colorado meet for just 120 days? Well, legislative session length is really a factor of many different parts of a state, the culture, the history, and the traditions, and Colorado's no exception. Um, In our state, 120 days is enshrined in our Constitution, and that's the case for 28 other states. So that's a good place to start when looking at our length. Okay, you say culture has something to do with this. What what, what about our history in Colorado might lead to a four-month session versus a year-round one? Well, um, part of the history um, with respect to the length of session for state legislatures has to do with the fact that back when legislatures were established, um, there were agrarian uh, systems in place. So many folks who served as lawmakers also were farming or ranching. And so it made sense to start in January and end before summertime. When fields weren't necessarily uh, being tended to quite as often. Okay, so this is a bit of a vestige. Can we say that? Yes, although I think um, legislatures have evolved. In the 60s and 70s, you saw a big movement movement in all states to um, bolster the strength of the legislative branch of government. And so states went from meeting, um, I mean, I would say about a third of them met every year. States really shifted to begin meeting every other year, um, as well as um, changing the length of session. Wait, every other year? Okay, I know that's true for tech. Texas, correct? But Texas is one of four states that currently meets every other year. That strikes me as difficult to get the state's business done. Is that true? Uh, I think when you talk to Texas lawmakers, they would say that their biennial session uh, suits them just fine, that they managed to get the state's work done in the time allocated toward them. They may talk about um, the interim and the work that they're doing in the non-session year and how that uh, affords them the opportunity to connect with constituents. Again, that's an example of the culture and traditions of the state. But we have seen movement from... uh, Uh, biennial to annual sessions over the past 30, 40 years. All right. Uh, Let me just note that in Colorado, state lawmakers earn between $30,000 and $40,000 a year. I imagine then that pay varies widely for state lawmakers across the country. It does. NCSL has um, kept record of that over the years. Colorado lawmakers' salaries, uh, and actually they just got a raise for the first time in about 20 years, effective last January. Uh, Colorado lawmakers' salaries put us about um, eighth, I believe 18th, I'm sorry, in the country um, as far as um, level of pay. Uh, legislators in California and New York, which we consider to be a little more, quote unquote, full time, uh, make around 110. In New Mexico, they're only paid per diem and receive no salary at all. Ah, OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned California, New York, Alaska and Hawaii also have full time legislatures. I want to understand the relationship between like number of bills past uh, and how long a session is. Is there a relationship there? Intuitively, you'd think there would be, but maybe that's an assumption. Um, 
I can't speak to sort of correlation between uh, legis- you know, how long a session uh, lasts and how many bills you see. Um, what I can say is that when we look about uh, look at a legislature's um, work and the um, autonomy and effectiveness they have, we tend to look at strength compared to the executive branch. And is the legislature able to accomplish what it needs to be to be an equal branch of government when you look at the executive? And what's the, what do you find? Well, um, we look at, you know, does the legislature have um, enough time to to do appropriate oversight of the executive, for example? Does it have enough time to pass its budget, which is a requirement pretty much in every state? Um, does it have enough time to to do its business and to to be effective? And, and so does that uh, get connected to the length of a session or is that about many more factors yes. beyond just, you know, the, the, the length? Many more factors beyond the length, um, I think, is part of it. Um, but when you do have a limited session length, what you do need to know is um, that deadlines play a part. And uh-huh. we have um, looked at legislator, legislative deadlines and how that's played into the legislature's ability to, to be effective and to get through what they need to get through in the time they have to do it. Okay. So lots of other factors contributing to the effectiveness, essentially, is what we're talking about fundamentally of a legislature. Your group, the National Conference of State Legislatures, conducted a report on 10 states, including Colorado, and you looked at factors that lessen or increase political polarization. What, what did you find? Yes, we did. We looked at um, uh, the ability of state legislatures to make policy in the face of rising polarization, a contrast to Congress, if you will. Um, and one of the things we found that's relevant to this conversation anyway is that constitutional provisions or rules um, can really impact the uh, legislature's mitigation of the effects of polarization. So, for example, a single subject rule for bills, which is something that Colorado has. That but kind that of every bill must address one subject. It can't be a place where you kind of shove in a bunch of different issues. Correct. So that helps the legislature focus and stay on track with the legislation that's under consideration. And that reduces partisanship. The in the the legislators um, dis, who talked with us in our case studies, um, yes, cited huh. different t- types of constitu- constitutional provisions with respect to session length. Uh, we couldn't really make a determination between if a short session or a long session was better. We we stayed out of it was that more or less partisan. Debate. Yeah, it had an effect of polarization. And in Congress, you can shove whatever you want to into a bill that that does not exist on the federal level. There's some, of, yeah, there's some of that for sure. Okay. Is there anything else that reduces polarization in just the last few seconds? Yeah, we found that um, some of the other um, things that reduce polarization and increase the legislature's ability to make policy were empowered legislative committees that make an effort to incorporate a minority point of view. Um, Does that happen here? Uh, yes, Colorado legislators, in fact, surveyed in that work, talked about um, ways that that happened, you know, having co-prime sponsors, for example. The idea of getting bipartisanship early on, not just at the floor when Correct. a bill is heard. And building okay. relationships. Thanks so much, Natalie, for being with us. Thank you. Natalie Wood directs the Center for Legislative Strengthening. That's a project of the National Conference of State Legislatures. And we talked about the reasons behind Colorado's 120-day session made of part-time lawmakers. Colorado Matters continues after a break with one of the big issues that will be up for debate this year. And a bit later, a native Australian living in Colorado helps us understand the scale of the fires down under. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News. 2020 brings another State of the State address as Governor Jared Polis lays out his agenda for the new year. 
I'm Joanne Allen. Thursday morning at 11, join me and Megan Verlee along with public affairs reporters Bentha Berkland and Andrew Kinney at the Capitol. We'll have reaction from key lawmakers in the chamber immediately following the speech. Hear about the issues affecting you. The Governor's State of the State Address, live Thursday morning at 11 on CPR News. One big issue that will come up at the state capitol this year, teen vaping and how to rein it in. The family of a key player understands a lot about this through hard-won experience, as CPR health reporter John Daly explains. In the kitchen of his home... Republican state senator Kevin Priola holds a cylindrical vaping device he took from his 17-year-old son. He doesn't know what it's called. This is one that I confiscated from him like two or three years ago. His son was not interested in being interviewed about it, and Priola and his wife Michelle asked that we not use their son's first name. But Kevin Priola wants to talk about the challenges of dealing with a teen with a heavy vaping habit. It can hit any family. Tell your kids everything you want them to know before they're 13, because after 13, they won't listen to you. (laughs) A dad of four, Priola is from Adams County, where he works in commercial real estate. He's a moderate from a swing district, so he'll play a key role in crafting vaping bills in a Senate where Democrats enjoy a slim advantage. Some Republicans have expressed skepticism of proposed vaping regulations. Priola's view of the larger, often spirited vaping debate is shaped by his experience at home. We're of the age and demographics of we, we're in the belly of the beast. We have ch- children that are at the age of they're experimenting. Michelle, a longtime elementary school teacher, describes how her son started vaping as we sit at the kitchen table. Photos filled with smiles from family events and vacations hang from the walls. Michelle says she's worked hard to create a healthy home for her kids. But trouble started when their son was 14. He was having some physical stress from athletics, I think some social stress, peer pressure, just trying to get along with kids. Social media was adding a lot of stress. The couple thought sports might immunize him to risky behaviors teens are especially prone to. Their son played football, hockey, baseball. He wrestled. Michelle says when she was growing up, she thought of kids experimenting with substances as being more on the fringe. They generally weren't the athletes. I see a shift now where athletes are dabbling in these things, but they're able to do it without without anyone really detecting and figuring it out. So they're pretty sneaky about it. Neither parent smokes, so they didn't know what to look for. Plus, vaping devices and pods are designed to be small, easy to hide, and hard to detect or smell. But the parents started finding signs of vape gear. They were hidden in places in his room, in his backpack, pillowcases, Kleenex boxes. I started getting really clever about where to look. And then he had a little stash outside. Kevin Priola says the new technology makes it hard to know what's going on. Like when we were kids, if someone saw us with a white little cigarette... They knew that had tobacco in it. In this day and age, you don't know if it has nicotine and tobacco or if it has really strong, potent marijuana. You don't know. With their son, the Priolas say they tried everything they could think of to help him quit vaping, including nicotine patches and gums, and taking privileges like driving away. They're worried and have seen the research that teens who vape are much more likely to go on to use conventional cigarettes. It was obvious he was addicted to it. He would say he could give it up, but he couldn't give it up. 
he's got really active parents who love him and support him and are on this journey with him. And yet we can't get him to stop. The changes have been tough, too, for Brema, the oldest of the family's three daughters. The 14-year-old describes a once close relationship with her older brother. Brema says she begged him not to vape. Please don't do this. It might not seem bad right now, but it'll bite you later. It just kind of broke my heart because he was a different person before it. Brema says her brother was more social, carefree, joyous before he started vaping. She tried to help him quit, and they bonded through that. Brema tears up describing how it didn't work. He began vaping again, and Brema says started using some other drugs as well. When I caught him or my parents caught him, I'd be like, really, you're doing this again? It hurt because I thought I made him see how bad it would be for him. And also, he's my brother, and I don't want to see him get hurt. The situation is one many families could relate to in Colorado. The state has the nation's highest teen vaping rate. Michelle Priola says it's all been a vulnerable experience. Even the parents of their son's friends were reluctant to talk about the rough seas their kids are swimming in. Here's what I came to realize the hard way and the very sad way was that no one's really speaking about it. It's a very shameful place for parents. I felt very alone in this journey because people I would talk to would shut me down. They did not want to discuss it. But now she wants to fight that stigma so more parents can feel comfortable talking about it. Well, the only reason I'm willing to speak about it publicly, because it is so painful, is to prevent and help other parents avoid the same problems with their children. For his part, as a lawmaker, Kevin Priola has tried to bridge the gap between the two parties. He joined Democrats in sponsoring a measure that passed last session to ban the smoking of vape devices in most indoor public places. What I firmly believe is 14, 15, 16-year-olds should not be messing with any of this stuff. But Priola is skeptical about an idea some Democrats favor, raising tobacco taxes. He thinks too much of government is being funded by fees and worries if taxes are too high, that could create a black market. But he's open to considering an idea some Republicans oppose, a flavor ban. Priola says thoughtful policy is needed. When stories of kids dying of new diseases are popping up and junior high students with vape pens. Despite the couple's best efforts, their son is still vaping. Meantime, Kevin Priola hopes as a state lawmaker to educate the public about the rise in teen vaping and to find solutions. I'm John Daly, CPR News. John has been covering teen vaping and its health effects since questions first arose. There's still more to explore, though. So give us your questions about vaping at CPR.org. The fires burning in Australia represent uncharted territory, according to ecologists. The flames may fundamentally redefine the ecosystem for wildlife and ultimately people. These fires literally hit home for CU Boulder ecologist Brett Melbourne. He grew up in southeastern Australia and knows the area's burning very well. Brett, welcome to the show. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, first off, how has it been to watch this from afar? Uh, it's been really hard and, and really sad. Uh, you know, actually, my sister was involved in it too, and she uh, just narrowly escaped from one of the really big fires. Um, her house in a little coastal village was uh, luckily saved. 
but uh, 80 houses in the same village burnt down and you know, there were people stranded on the beaches in that area for, uh, for days while the fire raged around them. And, um, uh, and, and then eventually, you know, many of those people were uh, airlifted by the, by the Navy. W- was she able to return home then or she remains evacuated? Uh, she remains evacuated, though um, uh, it's beginning to be safe, uh, you know, to go back I- into the area where she was. And uh, she does know that her house is, is fine. So that's uh, very good news. Oh. Uh, I know that there were some rains that eased people's fears, but the scale of this is enormous. It's estimated the fires have killed hundreds of millions of animals, including koalas and kangaroos. What do you make of those estimates? Are are they overstated? Yeah, there's a current estimate going around uh, of uh, something like 500 million uh, animals that would have been killed. And, you know, that's a back of the envelope uh, calculation it's made fairly simply by taking the, the known densities of animals in those areas and then multiplying by the area of fire. Oh. Uh, but it's a reasonable uh, back-of-the-envelope calculation for sure. It's a, you know, we, we won't really know until, until we get out there, but it's going to be something you know, in that ballpark. Uh, it's probably very much an underestimate, actually, because that's only for one of the states that is involved in the fires and it's only for some of the animals that are involved. It doesn't include, for, it's mostly mammals, birds, um, and uh, lizards, but it doesn't include things like uh, ants, um, you know, insects, uh, lots of other species that are not included in there. So it's, it's really going to be a much higher toll than that. Wildlife is obviously your focus. I do want to acknowledge that uh, with the 15 million acres that have burned in the last four months, at least 25 people have died um, back to the wildlife, I think of species that only live in Australia. Many were already endangered, facing extinction. I understand the concern among ecologists is that some species may not be able to bounce back. What, what kinds of species are you concerned about? Well, one of the uh, unique uh, aspects of Australia is the uh, is the flora and the fauna. And so there are hundreds of species that are unique to Australia. One really good example are the marsupials. So those are the uh, animals that uh, raise their young in pouches. Yeah. And so there are many of those species are endangered already. And uh, you know, these fires are just, I think you know, the main concern is that these fires are just so intense and so extensive. The area that is burnt is really, really unprecedented, really unusual. And so, you know, these fires have burned through the entire range of, of many species or very large parts of their ranges. And, uh, they, those include species like the brush-tailed rock wallaby, um, long-footed potteroo. These are uh, potteroo is a little marsupial that uh, forages around for um, mushrooms and, and fungi on the forest floor. Um, I'm really concerned about uh, the mountain pygmy possum, which is like the pika in Colorado, and it only exists on little mountain tops in a few isolated populations. And uh, while the fires haven't gone through there yet, they're uh, surrounding all of those populations right now and are very likely to you know, burn through them in the, in the coming weeks. So obviously some of these creatures are themselves falling victim to the fire, but is the concern then that the fire is just burning through what they eat and where they live and that that won't return in quite the same way? Yeah, and so there's a number of concerns. There's the direct, directly killed animals. So, so many, many animals will be killed. You know, the good news is that 
plants and animals in Australian ecosystems are actually well adapted to fire. Fire mm. is an integral part of this landscape. So, and in fact, many species need fire uh, to reproduce. Uh, there, are, there are plants, for example, that the heat of the fire actually releases the seeds out into the environment so that they can grow after a fire has passed through. Animals have like an enhanced ability to detect smoke and, and to get away from it. And they can actually also go into torpor after a fire to, uh, to wait out conditions until they are better. But the thing that's really different about these fires compared to the normal fires that those plants and animals have adapted to is that they, they're really, really big and really, really extensive. It's really, really hard to get a sense of the scale for just how big this is. Yeah. If you took the, you know, the four biggest fires in Colorado in the last few years, like the Waldo Canyon fire, the Four Mile Canyon fire, the High Park fire, the Black Forest fire, you put them all together, you know, you come to only 126,000 acres. And so if you multiply that by 100, you know, that's sort of the scale that we're looking at of, of what has been uh, burning in Australia. And the thing is that these fires are also really, really hot fires. Um, they're seeing, you know, they're so intense, they actually make their own weather systems. So they, they create lightning and they produce uh, uh, tornadoes. Uh, so, so it's a really, really different situation yeah. to what the plants and animals are used to. And so in a normal fire, there would, you know, the, the fire would be patchy and it would leave behind areas that are, that are damp in the landscape. But, you know, Australia is coming out, well, not, not coming out of, Australia is in the grip of a, a, a massive drought. And so all of these systems have dried out. They're really, really stressed already. Uh, by the drought, and and so this that means it's difficult for uh, animals to find shelter, and and you know, and and when they do, when the if, even if they do survive, yeah. when the fire has passed through, you know, there's there's nothing left to eat, there's nowhere to hide uh, from predators, and, and so on. So yeah, so you know, really, really different to what has come before. Brett Melbourne joins us, associate professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at CU Boulder. He grew up in southeastern Australia. Uh, Brett, to what extent is climate change the culprit here? You talked about all the underlying factors, the drought that preceded this. Yeah, so climate change definitely plays a role uh, in these fires. As I said, fire is a natural part of the Australian system. Um, but what we're seeing at the moment is, uh, you know, Australia has experienced record temperatures and record droughts. So last year, 2019, we've just heard it was the hottest and driest year on record. There's been little rain. And in fact, the toll of the drought has been enormous on the Australian agricultural community. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Australia recorded its hottest day ever. The average maximum was 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Like that's the, the average maximum of the entire continent. And, and that record smashed the previous one by two degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and, 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 and it was uh, surrounded by, uh, you know, four of the five hottest days ever experienced in Australia in, in a row. Um, just a few days ago in, uh, in Western Sydney, they, uh, you know, one area there experienced its hottest day, 119 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, this is really, really uh, extreme temperatures. And, 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 the, and so those, and that's, a, a, you know, a consequence of climate change that, uh, ha, you know, has added to the extremes that those uh, systems are experiencing. I just want to make it clear that you do research in Australia in addition to Colorado. And I, I wonder if there are lessons that we might carry away here from what they are experiencing down under. Yeah, so um, the, you know, the, the, the lessons to take away uh, for here is that, you know, these changes are occurring uh, around the world and fire is... Uh, 
one of those uh, things that is actually very sensitive to temperature changes. So a little bit of change in temperature leads to a, a large change in the fire hazard. And so I think, we need I to think really that's really important to understand because when we hear news reports about like a degree of temperature change or half a degree, it, it can be easy to kind of dismiss that. But you're saying those subtle changes make huge differences when it comes to fires. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, those they sound like small changes in temperature, but they have really big effects. It means that the landscape is is drier, fire seasons are longer, and so that means the fire hazard has changed. And uh, so it means we we need to take seriously how that's changed and what science predicts is going to be the changes in the years ahead. And 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 those predictions are that uh, fires will burn more often, they will be bigger, and the fire season will be longer. And so we're really entering uncharted waters. And uh, uh, you know, we need to develop new strategies. We need to adapt to these changes. Brett, thanks so much. And uh, our thoughts are with your sister, your family, and uh, your neighbors. Thank you very much. Brett Melbourne is an associate professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at CU Boulder. He grew up in southeast Australia. It must have been quite a sight, dancer Erica Prather busting moves at the Great Sand Dunes. She was inspired by some of the park's endangered species. And her partner, Kevin Larkin, meanwhile, was trying to understand the sound of sand. Kevin and Erica, who live in Arizona now, used to live in Colorado, join us to talk about their artist residency hosted by the Park Service. And guys, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Erica, let's start with a description of one of your poses at the sand dunes. So a headstand with your forearms in the sand for balance, your legs in the air and crossed at the ankles. What critter were you trying to embody? Yeah, that was a pretty gnarly position to get into. It's nice having a soft surface like sand for your head. (laughs) Um, So I was being the circus beetle, and that's actually... Not an endangered species there, but it's an endemic species, which just means that it's only found in Great Sand Dunes National Park. So it makes it that much more special. The circus beetle, it stands on its head? That's right. Yeah, it um, does a lot of kind of funky things with its body to actually keep itself elevated off the super hot sand in the summer. And then does some interesting things like standing on its head. Scientists don't know why they do all the things they do, but some thinking is that they actually put themselves in some of those positions to collect moisture on their backs, which then trickle down onto their heads and they can drink it. So in an arid climate where water is scarce, they have all sorts of interesting moves and adaptations. But what a cool critter, the circus beetle, trying to keep itself cool, keep itself hydrated. And you were doing a dance in homage to this creature. I like that you call this your artist in residency. Is that right, Erica? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's Get right. Get I, I think I was inspired to, you know, apply for this, both Kevin and I, but in particular me as a dancer, former dancer. And, you know, there was a lot of times I just kind of thought, why aren't the ballet companies in Colorado or wherever I might be doing something to 
highlight maybe different species, whether they're endangered or not, but particularly endangered species. And I just thought, well, I'll just do it myself. <laughs> I'll just make it myself. So, Were lots of people looking at you as you did these poses? Yeah, there were definitely some people that were kind of like wondering what I was doing, I think, when I was, <laughs> when I was moving around like that. And then, you know, obviously we had the component of of our residency that was interactive with the public where we were intentionally trying to engage them in moving and making sound too. So that one, they they still maybe looked at me a little bit weird, but that's okay. <laughs> Did you get any mouths full of sand in doing any of these poses? No, I really, I really oh. didn't. It, it gets in your hair. So but... Okay, Kevin, you were experimenting with sound. Tell me about your approach. I ended up composing a piece of sound based purely on a technique called granular synthesis, which breaks the sound up into tiny little particles of sound. These are about 10 to 50 milliseconds long. And you can really do some cool things with this technique. And it's a whole new way of thinking about sound for me, isn't, you know, just exploring that. So I ended up building a sandbox. People could pour sand into funnels and there was little microphones on the funnels and there was four speakers all around them that were solar powered. And so they would play with the sand. And as they dumped it into the funnels, it would amplify the sound of the sand and process it using these granular techniques. And it would just kind of sound like big washy waves. I kind of wanted to make it sound like the dunes look, you know, like vast and big and, and flowing. I called it whispering sand. So is it that you're literally hearing each grain of sand? Yes, you are. Uh, each grain of sand is being amplified through a contact microphone. And when all of those little sound particles add up, it creates these huge waves of sound. Hmm. I love how both like literal that is and also poetic. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a fun... It was a fun project, just, you know, I think in, in any artistic endeavor, um, I really like limitation and limiting limiting this project to only thinking about sound in terms of sand and grains was, was a really nice exploration. I wonder, though, if you started to think of the critters that live in the sand. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's part of the, you know, just being in the park and you know, we got to stay there overnight and just experience it. In the night and then during the day, you hear all sorts of things when you start paying attention to what's around you. And even, I, I didn't experience this, but the dunes themselves actually whistle when the wind oh. blows through them, right? I'm, I, I, you must be bummed you didn't get to hear. I'm bummed I didn't get to hear that. <laughs> uh, you can YouTube it. <laughs> or, you know, okay. someone's recorded this. It's pretty cool. Now, Kevin, your focus on how the park sounds reminds me that the Great Sand Dunes could become the first quiet park in the U.S., as CPR has reported. I wonder if the absence of sound at the park also played a role in your thinking. Absolutely, yeah. I think 
knowing that that's a value for people and for parks that you can go somewhere to get away from it all and go get away from the traffic and get away from the noise and the construction is really a pretty amazing thing. So actually, when I set up the singing sandbox, the whispering sand installation, I was kind of a little bit like, wait a minute, isn't this a quiet park? And I'm here out here at the sandbox making a bunch of noise. <laughs> but I think <laughs> at the end of the day, it was, you know, it was a Saturday during the day. And I think just getting people to tune in to the, instead of just looking at them, getting them to listen was part of the exercise. Erica, before we go, I know that the arts you created, I had a connection to climate change. You were interested in making that part of the message. Do you think you were able to convey that or, or what did you perhaps learn about the sand dunes and climate change? You know, overall, I was interested in some species. I interpreted a bird that's actually the Audubon Society says is likely to go extinct within the next several decades because it's a climate threatened species. And I think that, you know, as our parks become even more visited, that's awesome. But I'm hoping that people can take away that, you know, climate does impact our parks as well and that our parks are ecosystems, their habitat, they are refuge for a lot of different species. So hope that message kind of resonates through the way that perhaps people see these funky photos and then maybe they'll take the time to look up what that species is or what those species, you know, bring to that park. And then maybe they'll be conscious of their choices, whether that means picking up trash, being a little bit quiet, thinking about kind of leave no trace principles, and then realize through that that biodiversity is is beauty. And so, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you preserved all of these poses in perpetuity through photographs, which uh, we'll certainly share with the audience. Erica, Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Erica Prather and Kevin Larkin recently finished an artist residency at the Great Sand Dunes National Park. They examined climate change through sound and dance. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.